Please turn your Bible to the book of Revelation. There at the end of your Bible. We are at the conclusion of our biblical counseling conference weekend and discipleship weekend, and it's been a, a hard uh, weekend, but also very encouraging, I, I trust, and I hope that you who have been able to be a part of it have been encouraged. We desire to be a church where we have the ability to, to love those who are going through tough circumstances, uh, to love them well, and to, to care for them, and to know how to do so biblically. And, and we desire to be a, a church that is uh, able to hear and listen and, and be very receptive to those uh, who are going through different circumstances. And so hopefully, if you've been a part of the weekend, you've grown in your ability to, to care for those. I know that I've been encouraged in, in my, kind of thinking through some of the, the counseling I've done or discipleship I've done, and and, and Hearing some of the things that were taught, I thought, oh, I, I wish I could go back and, and do some things differently in the past, but, but trust that the Lord will take what I've, I've learned and, and help me in the future. If you were not able to be a part of the conference this last weekend, would encourage you to, to listen to some of the messages, uh, watch some of the videos. We'll be putting those out sometime soon as we kind of edit some of those things. Uh, Mike said they're going to take my message and get it down to the good 10 minutes. Uh, but besides that, uh, everything else was, was very good. I encourage you to listen to that and, and grow in that so that we can be a church that is, that is, is caring for those who've been uh, oppressed, abused, who've suffered uh, because of the sin of, of others. And we'd be uh, quick to spot things, too. We'd be quick to, to listen and to pick up on things and to be able to, to help those who need to hear the gospel, uh, not just the gospel to be saved, but the gospel to be healed and to be encouraged, and uh, we, we want to be that, that church. We're in the book of Revelation, and we're looking at Revelation 13, and we're talking about the reality of, of sin and suffering, and here in the book of Revelation chapter 13, we encounter the beast, the first beast described in the book of Revelation chapter 13, referring to the Antichrist, we'll talk more about that later. We're going to look at verses 5 through 10, so we're, we're taking the week off from our study in the book of Acts. We're look, going to look at verses 5 through 10, but as we read, I'm going to start in verse 1. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, beginning in verse 1, and this is from the English Standard Version, and here's what John writes as he begins. He says, and I... I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have, been, to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and, and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name 
has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must, be, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us in his word this morning. And Father, we do ask for that strengthening work. We would ask that you would be glorified through your word as we read it together this morning. We, we pray that uh, you would help our hearts to be receptive to it. Uh, these are some, some hard things we're thinking through, so we, we pray for just your gentle, kind grace on our lives. I pray that you would help me uh, to be very careful as, as I speak. I pray that the, the words that I would speak would be true, yet at the same time encouraging you would help us to, to marvel at your glory and your beauty. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Sometimes when I've been talking with someone about a, a situation that they're going through, I've, I've found that it's, it's helpful sometimes to, to talk through a theological word, a theological term or, or phrase. So, for example, maybe I'm, I'm talking with someone about their the relationship with God, and they, they tell me, boy, I'm just really struggling and feeling secure in that relationship. And we might talk about the word adoption. Say, so, hey, you know, there's a, there's a word that Scripture uses. We call it adoption. It talks about God's welcoming you into his family through, through your faith in his son, Jesus. You, we become heirs. We're, we're children of God. Maybe we'd walk through Ephesians. Or maybe I'm talking with someone about what they're going through, and this person tells me that they are are struggling with the reality of sin in their lives. I said, boy, I, I desire to, to grow, and I, I think I'm doing better than I was when I, you know, for sure before I was a Christian, it, but, you know, I've been a Christian the last 10 years, and now I'm kind of hitting, hitting this point, and I, I just feel like I've hit this, this roadblock in my, my relationship with the Lord. And I say, you know what, you know what I think you're describing sanctification. That, that's a word that we that we use a theological word with, with rich, deep meaning. Let's, let's talk about sanctification, about becoming more and more sanctified, more and more devoted to God and his glory and his beauty. It's helpful sometimes to talk about a theological word. It allows there to be some, some depth and some, some richness to our conversations. We, we talk about what we're experiencing in, in light of God's word. Sometimes, though, uh, there are some theological words that aren't helpful to, to use when we're talking with, with people. Sometimes I'm talking with someone and they, they talk about the, the suffering that they're going through. They'll say, look, I'm, I'm going through this time of, of suffering and I, I, I'm suffering because of someone else's sin in, in my life. Someone has, has sinned against me. And what I'm wrestling with, Daniel, is I'm, I'm wrestling with the reality that that this horrible sin has been committed that I'm, I'm enduring, and yet God says that he's good. How, how do I wrestle with this? Now, I have never, when someone's told me a situation like that, I've said, you know what, there's a theological word, theodicy. And let's talk about theodicy. I've never done that. That's not helpful. The word theodicy, though, does describe that reality. 
It describes the reality that there is sin and suffering in the world, and, and yet at the same time, God is good and God is sovereign. In fact, as, as we think about the reality of, of sin and suffering in the world, it can be overwhelming for us to even contemplate the, the depth and the breadth of sin. Think about just on a, on a global scale. Today, there are going to be battles fought and, and skirmishes and, and, and wars, and, and sons are going to be killed as a result of, of sin today. Uh, there's going to be sex trafficking that takes place. There are going to be uh, harsh words that are spoken. There are going to be broken families all, all over the world. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a certainty that sin is going to occur today on a scale that it's, it's literally impossible for you and I to grasp. We, we can't grasp the, the breadth of sin and suffering that's going to take place just today, much less this week, much less over our, our lifetimes. The, the scale of sin that exists in the world is, is impossible for us to comprehend. The, the depth of suffering that's going to take place because of sin is, is impossible for you and I to, to come to to grips with. So, how, how do we respond to that? I would say it's a huge blessing for me to be a, a pastor at a church that is committed to a biblical understanding of, of suffering and a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. It's far easier to, to talk about God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering when you're talking to someone who's already committed themselves to that understanding. In fact, very often, it's been me who's been ministered to, and it's me who's gained a deeper understanding of God's goodness as I've been in your homes, as you've gone through tough circumstances due to the reality of living in a fallen world. You've ministered to me as you've proclaimed to me in the midst of your suffering God's goodness and his faithfulness and his kindness and your continued love for him. It's ministered to me. It's far better for us to have that understanding before we encounter sin and suffering in our lives and to, to try to grapple with that in the midst of it. In fact, as we talked this morning, there's, there's a couple of, of goals that I, I have for our time this morning. You know, our, the title of our message is Why Sin Exists. And as I look at that, I think, Okay, I may have oversold this a little bit. That is a very bold, uh, a bold question there. And the, the idea, the implication is that I'm going to have an answer, um, which I do. I do have an answer, uh, but my answer is not going to, to deal with, with all the ramifications of, of the question because, honestly, we have to, to tread very, very carefully here. The relationship between God's sovereignty and his goodness and the reality of, of human sin is, 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 a, is a tough one to, to think through. I mean, there are some undeniable truths, right? It, it's, it's an undeniable truth that, that sin exists, and it's an undeniable truth, biblically, that people are responsible for their sin. And it's, it's an undeniable truth that, that sin is horrific and, and tremendous, and yet at the same time, it's also, there's also some other undeniable truths. It's undeniably true that God is sovereign. It's undeniably true that God is, is good. God has perfect and complete control over all aspects of life, including sin, and yet it's also an undeniable truth that God is not the author of sin. Yes, how do we wrestle with all that? 
I'm not totally sure. I think D.A. Carson, to, to paraphrase him, he, he, he said it well. Uh, as we think about tensions like this in Scripture, our, our goal is not, to, is not to, to solve an equation. It's not some sort of equation. We say, okay, we have this, and we have this, and, and the answer is this. It's more of a, a biblical framework that God has caused, called us to explore and, and to worship him through. In fact, as we think about this, this question, why sin exists, there's a couple of goals that I have for us in our time together this morning. My, my first goal would just be perseverance. As, as we think about the reality of what some of you are going through, my, my hope would be that there would be perseverance that results from our conversation this morning. You are right now experiencing the reality of living in a fallen world, you're, you're experiencing sin against you. And so my, my first encouragement would just, just be to persevere. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up hope. And so my, 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 my goal would be perseverance, that as we think about these truths today, we, we would continue to persevere in the life that God has called us to live. My, my second goal would not just be perseverance, but preparation. Some of us have not yet entered into a time of, of intense suffering, and so as we, we think about the reality that we're going to suffer, that suffering isn't some surprising thing that takes place, my, my hope would be that we would be prepared for that. And not only would I want us to be persevering and prepared, but also praising. That as we, we think about the biblical truths that are communicated this morning, that we would respond with praise. Praising the matchless name of our God and Savior. Here's the, the main idea that I, I want us to, to think about this morning. Why does sin exist? Sin exists so that God can be glorified through it. That's not a very controversial, surprising answer for you, I'm sure. But, but let, me, let me say a little bit more, and, and we want to tread very carefully here because it's, it's, it's possible to be misunderstood as, as we talk about the relationship between God and sin. So we want to tread very lightly, very care, not lightly, but very, very carefully. What I'm saying here is, as we go through Revelation 13 is that God takes something terrible but limited in scope. So it's, it's terrible, and that word terrible doesn't even begin to describe the, the horrific nature of sin. God takes something terrible but but at the same time limited in scope and power and produces eternal joy for his saints and proclaims the limitless glory of his grace. So sin exists, we know, so that God can be glorified through it. We don't understand all of, of how that works, but we know that God is going to take something terrible, sin, something terrible but limited in its scope and its power, and, and, and through sin, he's going to produce eternal joy for, for us, for his saints, for those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and he's going to proclaim the limitless glories of his grace. We're going to see that as we look at Revelation 13. Now, before we, we begin to unpack Revelation 13, let me just say a couple things, because some of you are going to have questions as you, you think about the book of Revelation. I know that a lot of you have sometimes asked me questions about what's taking place in Revelation and so forth. And so, just a, a couple of, of thoughts the, the book of Revelation, there have been lots of different ways to interpret it, and maybe you've encountered some of these interpretations, and it's been a little bit confusing. But one method of interpreting the book of Revelation is to believe that the events of Revelation describe things that happened in the first century. So John writes in the first century, and there's a belief that, that perhaps the events culminated in the first century specifically 
with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And that, that interpretation is called the preterist viewpoint. They would say, okay, this, this culminated in 70 AD. The events in the book of Revelation are describing the first century. Another interpretation of the book of Revelation would, would be what we call the historicist interpretation. This interpretation would, would believe that there have been different uh, church, uh, church history, church ages, and so the book of Revelation is describing these, these ages, these, these times throughout church history. That's the historicist uh, interpretation of Revelation. Uh, some would believe that the book of Revelation is, is primarily symbolic, so it's not necessarily describing anything chronologically. It has these, these imageries and this, this symbolism, which of course it does, and they say, okay, it's, a, it's, it's describing the, the spiritual battle that has taken place in human history, and that, that would be the idealist interpretation of the book of Revelation. And then still others of us would interpret the book of Revelation as being primarily future. Okay, these are things that are going to take place in the future. And can, can you guess what that interpretation might be called? Right, futurist. Okay, that's the futurist interpretation of Revelation. That's where most of, uh, most of the church has been throughout church history. For sure, the early interpreters of the book of Revelation saw it as future and that's where I would primarily be as well, although I think there are some things we can learn from each of these interpretations. For sure, it's important to see the first century context of the book of Revelation. For sure, there are lots of symbolic things that are taking place here and, and some universal truths about the struggle that takes place spiritually in the world. And then also, of course, there are some aspects of, of the whole of church history and human history being laid out in this book. But Revelation 13... I believe, is occurring in the future, describing something that's going to take place. And so I want us to look at verses 5 through 10 and help us at, answer this question, why sin exists. And let's begin by looking at verse 7. And as we look at verse 7, we're going to see this first truth that there's sin against God's people. Okay, So look at the text with me if you would. This first thing that we see is, we, well, why does sin exist? The first thing I want us to see is there's sin against God's people. Number one, God's people are, are sinned against. That's, that, we encounter that here in verse 7. And we're going to look at verse 7 first, and we're going to broaden our context. So look at verse 7. It says this. It says, also it, and that's referring to the beast, and this beast is the Antichrist. It says, this, this beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over this, 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 was given to this beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. So this beast, this, this, this is the final Antichrist. And as John told us in his epistles, there are, there are many Antichrists in the world, and they've, they've existed throughout church history. And this, here in Revelation, I believe is describing this, this final Antichrist. This, there's this culmination of opposition to God and his kingdom. And there's this man, empowered by the dragon, by Satan, who wages war. This is a major climactic attack on Christ's followers. And Christ's followers are being attacked because of their identification with him. So it says it was this, this beast, the Antichrist, verse 7, is allowed to make war. He's, he's allowed to fight against God's people. This is a thing that he's allowed to do. By 
the dragon, but even more specifically by, by God. He's the one who gives him this ability. Now, is that a surprise? Well, of course not. Of course not. It doesn't surprise us when Christ's followers are, are persecuted. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus would say this in John chapter 15. He says, if, if the world hates you, know that it has hated, he's talking to his disciples here, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will also persecute you, which they will. He says, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in, the, in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Beloved, we need to grasp this reality. You and I, if we are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will encounter persecution. We will encounter opposition. And it's crucial that the opposition we encounter, we've talked about this many times, it's crucial that the opposition we encounter is not due to our own sin against other people, but is due to our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, our identification with him. In other words, the, the, the ridicule and the scorn and the, the strife that, that comes our way must not be because we're, we're jerks, because we're antagonistic people. It must be because people are, are angry ultimately with God. And their opposition is ultimately not to us, but to him. How, how is, is Jesus Christ described in the book of Revelation? He's described as, as the lamb over and over again. There's a meekness to our Savior. And there must be a meekness to you and I as well. We're not the grenade throwers. We're not the, the people who are launching vitriolic attacks on those with whom we disagree. We're we're like lambs. We're, we're gentle. We're kind. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. That's the followers of Christ. And God's people are going to be sinned against. Now, here's the second thing I want you to see. And this is, this is hard to grasp. But number two, God allows and appoints sin against his people. Again, we have to tread carefully here. The relationship between God and the sin that happens to his people is a hard one to think through. Uh, John Piper just published a book called Providence. And in the book, he, he writes this as he's talking about this, this relationship between a sin and God's people. He says, whatever verb I use to describe God's relation to human choices, I always mean a kind of divine seeing to it, a providence that never means God sins or that man is not accountable for his choices. To be specific, God can see to it that sin happens without himself sinning or taking away the responsibility of the sinner. And so I'm using the word allows and appoints, and hopefully that's getting across the right idea. God allows, and I use the word allows because I don't want us to think that God is the author of sin, but he allows 
sinful people who are responsible for their sinful choices to harm his people. And yet at the same time, I use the word appoints because this is not outside of God's control. This is part of his divine plan. God allows and appoints sin against his people. Look at verse 10. What do we see? If anyone is to be taken captive, in other words, if this is part of God's plan, they're going to go into captivity. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. If it is God's divine plan that you and I suffer martyrdom, guess what? We're going to suffer martyrdom. God allows that. God appoints that. Sin against God's people will happen, and it's something that God has allowed and appointed. Now, let me just stop for a moment, and let's, let's do some points of application here. Let's, let's think through the, some, some things will help us as we think about this reality. One, don't be surprised at sin and suffering. Sometimes uh, someone might say to you, boy, I'm, I'm going through this, this situation where this, this horrific thing is happening to me and it's really shaking my, my faith in God. And I think a, a good thing to ask very gently is, well, well, why is that? I mean, isn't this exactly what God said would happen to us? If anything, if, if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus and we don't encounter persecution, that's more of a reason for, for, for doubting God and having our faith in God shaken because God said it would happen and it's not. So when I encounter sin and suffering, I shouldn't be surprised by that. This is, this is reality. Don't be surprised at sin and suffering. A second application would be this. Trust in the midst of suffering that God has sovereignly appointed the limits of your suffering. God allows and appoints it. That means he's also appointed the the limits of of that suffering. Sin is not infinite. It doesn't have power that's infinite. It's it's limited in its power and its its scope. There have been a couple of times where I've I've, uh, run a marathon trying to qualify for the the Boston Marathon. The the Boston Marathon is a marathon that if, if you, you know, based upon your age, if you, run it in a, if you run another marathon in a certain time, your reward is you get to run another marathon. So you, I know it doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it doesn't. Um, yeah, so you have to run a certain time to, to be able to qualify for the Boston Marathon. So there's been three times where I've really tried to, to run fast enough to get to run another marathon, to get to run, to qualify for Boston. And and uh, one time, didn't even get close. It was just, it was uh, not very good. But then uh, two other times, I've been what's called a squeaker. A squeaker is someone who runs just fast enough to get to apply to be in the Boston Marathon, but probably didn't run fast enough to get a, a guaranteed spot because once a certain number of people apply, they start taking the fastest people. So I've been a, a squeaker a couple of times. Now, when I've been running the, the race to try to qualify for the Boston Marathon, as I, as I start off and as I, as I begin to run, there have been times in the marathon where I felt like, I'm going to nail this thing. I am going to definitely, I'm no, I'm no longer going to be this little squeaker. I'm going to be a roarer or something like that, right? And uh, that's, that's about mile one, mile two. Um, 
And then, and then it begins to, you know, as, at some point it begins to hit me, um, boy, I, I don't know about this. I don't know. And before the race, I can tell myself, I can read books and say, look, you have more in you than you think, and you can do it. It's all in your mind. But it, it, at a certain point, my mind makes really convincing arguments <laughs> that I am not strong enough to do this now. Now, maybe it's true. Maybe it's in my mind, and maybe if I just tried a little harder, I'd, I'd have more. You know, maybe if I changed, what I, whatever. But I, I know this. I do have some limit, right? <laughs> All of us, we have some limit. When we do something physical or mental or whatever, there's, there's some limit beyond which we cannot go. We don't have infinite power. Sin is not infinite. It, it has a, a limited power, and it, it may be incredible, but it's still not infinite. And God is the one who sets its limit. A third thing that I think is important for us to think about in terms of application of, the, of this point we need to believe that suffering is under the, the, the hand and the control of a, a God who loves us. That, that, that's clear here. God loves his saints, and yet he's appointing the suffering for them to go through. When I was in college, I was reading through the book of Romans, and I, I was already a Christian, but then I became a, a Calvinist. You know, I became committed to the idea of God's, God's sovereignty. And then I became an angry Calvangelist, where I thought my goal and, and job in life was to convert everyone else to Calvinism. And uh, that was a very ugly phase. You know, you don't want to be around a Calvangelist. Um, they are not pleasant at times. But um, I, I remember trying to talk to my, my dad about some of the, the things I was reading and, and just convincing him of, of the truth of this. And my, my dad was not very convinced by my intellectual arguments, right? not very impressed with my, my arrogance, frankly. But then there, a pastor about the same time, maybe a few years later, came, came to the church and he was also committed to the, the doctrines of, of grace, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and, and God's goodness, but, but he was teaching it from Scripture and, and drawing the applications from, from God's Word and, and talking about God's goodness in, in the midst of suffering. My dad became very committed to the, the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I'll tell you this, I was so grateful for that because as my dad went through some of the most horrific suffering, I've seen someone go through as, as he suffered from cancer, that, that belief that even in a world ravaged by sin, there was a sovereign God who loved him and was appointing this for him was a huge comfort. The reality is we live in a world where there's sin against God's people. We live in this world where there's suffering. We say, okay, you know, why sin? Why, why, why doesn't God just use good? Well, remember our, our, our central idea of God, God uses sin in such a way that he's glorified through it. He takes something terrible, but limited in its scope and power, produces eternal joy for his saints and produces glory to his name. Let's, let's talk about this now. That's, that's sin against God's people. Now let's notice something else in the text. There's also sin that occurs against God. So that's sin against God's people. There's also sin against God. So verse 7 describes the sin against God's people in verse 10 as well. Now let's, let's broaden our scope and we see that verse 7 occurs in the midst of a passage where there is sin against God himself. In fact, notice this. Very often, whenever, whenever we encounter sin, our, our tendency is to ask the, the why question. God, why would you allow sin against me? We're very aware 
of the travesty of sin against ourselves. How, how horrific, how unjust. God, how could you allow someone as, as beautiful and as precious as me to, to suffer the injustice of, of my children not respecting me? I mean, Lord, is, is there no good in this world, right? But the question we often don't ask is, God, how can you, a God who is infinitely good, allow there to be a world in which your infinite goodness is not recognized by all? How can you allow sin against yourself? I mean, the, the best of us, I mean best in comparison to each other, the best of us have finite goodness. I mean, our goodness doesn't extend forever. There's, there's, we all have a limit. God's goodness has no end. There, there's no end to his, his goodness. How can a God like that allow sin against himself? It's a much more profound question to ask, how can God allow sin against himself than how can God allow there to be sin against me? But God does allow that. Appointed even. One, we see the, the beast sins against God through blasphemy. Verse 5 describes this blasphemy. It says, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for, for, for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So God is the one who gave this man a mouth. And the purpose of a mouth is to use it to glorify God. And instead, this beast blasphemes. And what is blasphemy? It's uttering lies about God. Our mouths were created to proclaim truths about God and bless his name. And instead, this mouth is being used to blaspheme, to utter lies about God, to diminish his glory through, through lies about God and his character. The beast sins against God. The Antichrist sins against God through blasphemy. The second thing we see here is that people sin against God through idolatry. Look at verse 8. It says that, so we've, we've seen verse 7, the, the sin against God's people. And it says, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone. Everyone except a group we'll talk about in just a moment. So all are engaging in idolatry. No nation or, or people, no power group is immune from this idolatry. God has created people to worship him. The beast is proclaiming lies about God, trying to diminish God's glory. And whatever nation exists at this time is engaged in idolatry. If Russia, if China, if... if uh, you know, Brazil, if whatever country, America, United States of America, whatever country you want to name, if it exists at this time, the people in that nation will be engaged in idolatry. And God, God allows and appoints that sin. Here's the third thing I want you to see. The greatest sin in the history of the universe is the slain of the lamb. Verse 8 continues. It says everyone's engaged in this idolatry except those whose names have not been written before who have 
except those names that are written in the, in the book before the foundation of the world, in the book of the life of the Lamb, who was what? Who was slain. And here John is pointing us to the greatest sin in the history of the universe. Remember, what is God? God is good. And he's not good in the same way that you and I are good. You and I are good in the sense that we conform to some sort of standard outside of ourselves as God enables us to by his grace. God is goodness itself. There's no... There's no limit to his goodness. He is infinite goodness. And so a sin against an infinite good being is infinitely wicked. The slaying of the lamb is the greatest sin in the history of the universe. And yet at the same time, what we're going to see is that greatest sin in the history of the universe is the reason the universe came into existence. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. The greatest sin in the history of the universe leads to the greatest praise of God's glorious grace. Again, not everyone engages in the sinful idolatry and blasphemy. He says it's, it's those whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world. There are some whose names are written in this book of life, and their names were there before the foundation of the world. The purpose of the world coming to existence was to, to save this group that's written in, the, in this book of the Lamb. And, and who's the, whose book is this? It's the Lamb. Not just the Lamb, but the what Lamb? The slain Lamb. Now, what's the relationship between those who are not worshiping the beast and the Lamb? The Lamb has purchased with his own blood, these saints. He has saved these saints from blasphemy, from idolatry. They're protected. And now, what are these saints going to do for eternity? They're going to worship the lamb, and not just the lamb, but the slain lamb. And without the existence of sin, this worship would not be possible. If there was no sin, the lamb could not have been slain. So, let's talk about this. Why does sin exist and what does God do with it? First, notice this. Through an act of sin, God maximizes the eternal proclamation of the glory of his grace. It's through an act of sin, the slain of the lamb, the greatest act of sin in the history of humanity, that God is, is maximizing the eternal proclamation of the glory of his grace. In, in Revelation 5, John says that he sees a throne and the four living creatures among the elders. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent over all the earth. And it says that he sees the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before this slain lamb. And they sing this new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And so this, out of this, 
out of all these nations and tongues and tribes that are going to be engaged in idolatry, God in his goodness and his grace has, has, has drawn from them those who are going to be his worshipers forever. And, and now, what's, what's going to be the content of their praise? They're going to be praising the slain lamb. It's going to be the, we, we see as we go into the, the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth, we see them the, the slain lamb still there, which, which tells me that this, the slain lamb is going to, that imagery of the slain lamb is going to continue on into our worship forever. Every creature in heaven and earth and under the, under the earth and in the sea and all this in them was saying, to him who sits on the throne in the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Again, in Revelation 20, as we enter the eternal state, Jesus is the slain lamb. This will be part of our worship forever. And it's through an act of sin that God in his grace saves us and allows us to be worshipers. And what's what's the content of our worship going to be? It's not going to be blasphemy, of course. God forbid. It's going to be proclaiming truth. The truth of his glory and the truth of his glory that we're going to proclaim forever is his, his grace, the, the slain lamb. And without sin, that, that praise would not be possible. God is maximizing the eternal proclamation of the glory of his grace. Number two, as we think about why sin exists and what God does with it. Number two, God takes sin that is momentary and, and produces eternal rewards see that in 2 Corinthians 4. It calls it light momentary affliction. We don't mean light in the sense that it's not terrible, but it's, it's light in the sense that it's, it's temporary. I'm talking here about the, the scope of sin's time. Think about this, and, and I want you to think about a person. I don't want you to think about this person so that you can stir up thoughts of bitterness and, and anger, and, and the, but think about the person perhaps who's, who's wounded you the most deeply. And even as you think about that person, pray for them. <laughs> pray for God's grace in their life if God, that hasn't already been exhibited. But, but think about the person who's wounded you the most deeply. And, and understand this, that, that wound that they have caused, what they have done to you, no matter how horrific it is, there is going to be a time where that, that sin no longer affects you in the way that it does now. That harm that that sin has caused you has an expiration date. There's there's a shelf life to it. And the beauty of God's power over sin is that God is going to take that sin that that right now is, is terrible and horrific. And what God can do with that is he can produce rewards that have no end date. God is going to do something with that sin where you, you have been affected by it and it's wounded you and it has caused you pain and there's suffering you're going through perhaps even right now because of that sin. And there are things about God and his character that you're going to be able to cling to and learn from and create, it's going to create holiness within you and you are going to enjoy that holiness and that understanding of God forever. And so God has taken sin that is terrible, but it's momentary, and he's producing eternal reward. Number three, God takes sin that is is limited in, in power and produces salvation without boundaries. So sin, 
terrible, but again, as we've said already this morning, not infinite. That sin can't remove your relationship with God. That sin committed against you cannot sever the, the bond between you and Christ. You are, you're united with Christ, and sin cannot remove that. God takes the greatest sin in the universe and uses it to undo sin. Uh, John Piper calls it sin's suicide at the cross. At the moment of its greatest victory comes its greatest loss in eternity. God takes sin that is limited in power and produces salvation without boundaries. In the book, The Return of the King from the Lord of the Rings, there's this beautiful scene where this character Samwise sees Gandalf, who he thought was dead. And he says, Gandalf, I, I thought you were dead, but, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he has this beautiful line, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? In the gospel, believer, for us, everything sad is going to come untrue. God in his grace takes sin that's limited in power and he provides a salvation with no boundaries. There's no end to the goodness of God in eternity. Finally, God takes groans that only some can hear and turns them into praises that will be on the lips of multitudes without number for all eternity. And what I mean here is I'm speaking here of the limits of sin's effects on others. You right now are affected by the sin of other people against other people. Maybe there have been horrible things that have happened to a, a daughter or a sister or a, a husband, and you, you're, you just are overwhelmed by the injustice of this. And, and, and brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand is this. Sins, sins, sin right now is causing groans upon our lips, and the groans, again, let's not minimize the reality of those groans this morning. They are deep, and they are terrible, and they are extensive, and they are overbearing. They're oppressive, and yet there's a limit. And what God is going to do, he's going to take the groans now that some of us can hear, and he's going to produce praises that are going to be the lips of multitudes without number for all eternity. So last thing here, our response to sin. Our response to sin. John says, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. And he says in verse 10, here's a call. What's the point of all this? Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Believer, God's call on you is clear. It's clear crystal clear. God's call on you is to continue to press on and to believe the things that God has said about the future, to believe that those things are true. We want to persevere. We want to be prepared. We want to praise. God is glorified through sin, even sin. God takes something terrible but limited in scope and power and produces eternal joy for his saints and proclaims the limitless glory of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we would ask for you to be very kind to us this morning. We pray for those who are going through deep suffering that they would turn to you in your goodness and, and persevere. We pray for those who are 
in this church who maybe aren't going through suffering themselves, but we pray that you would bring people into our lives who, who need to, to be comforted, that we would have the ability to comfort them with, with, with the comfort which, with, which we ourselves have received, as you say in your word. Give us the kindness and the ability to point people to your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.